Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew and from Ruth, chapters 1 and 4. Hear the word of our Lord. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And from the book of Ruth, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness, may may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to the sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And then from chapter 4, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who, has this day, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your own old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are starting our new Advent series this morning, looking at the mothers of Jesus. And as we've seen here at the beginning, Matthew's gospel doesn't begin once upon a time, and it doesn't even just jump into the story of Jesus' birth. It actually begins with this genealogy, grounding this story of hope in reality. The origins of where someone came from function much like a resume does for us today. And what's amazing about the genealogy that Matthew gives to us is that Matthew and Jesus himself, they don't shy away from Jesus' family's sordid past. It includes Abraham, who lied about his wife twice to save himself. Uh, Jacob, whose name was synonymous with being a liar, who stole his family's birthright. Judah, who... Uh, sold his brother into slavery and then sleeps with his daughter-in-law thinking she's a prostitute. And then David takes his best friend's wife and to cover it up has his friend killed. And then we have Manasseh, the most wicked king in all of the history of Judah. And then Matthew does something even more unexpected. He includes five women in this list of Jesus's ancestors. You know, if you and I were telling our, our family history, um, you know, especially if we were the the perfect son of God, you know, wouldn't we leave off the embarrassing people? Wouldn't we leave off the embarrassing stories and the embarrassing members of our family tree? 
Um, the stories around these women included in this list highlight some of the most embarrassing, dysfunctional, and shameful moments in Jesus' family history. But thank God Jesus doesn't shy away from them like we would. We're later told in Matthew one twenty one that this Jesus will save his people from their sins. So we see right off the bat that there's something different about this Jesus. Jesus doesn't shy away from the outsiders, from the broken, from the sinful, from the failures, from the embarrassing and the dysfunctional and the ashamed. He leans in and he comes directly for them. He comes directly for us. What that tells us is who we are, who, what we've done, in a sense, it doesn't really matter um, if we repent and we turn towards Jesus in faith and we believe that he is the one who came to live and to die for us, that his grace really can cover all of our sin, that our sin is no match for his grace. You really can belong to this Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you really can belong to his people and his church. We see that Jesus isn't ashamed of his dysfunctional family. And because that's true, it's good news for you and me. Because what that means is Jesus isn't ashamed of us either. Hebrews 2.11 says, Jesus is not ashamed to call those in his family brothers. We see in the story of Advent and the story of Ruth here this morning that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his family. Ultimately, the story of Advent, the story of Jesus coming to earth as a baby to live the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live and to die a shameful death as a criminal on a cross, saving his people from their sins. This one is a story of hope for the hopeless. And the genealogies, the the mothers of Jesus that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, they're stories of hope for the hopeless as well. So this morning, we're going to look at the story of Ruth, and we're going to see that her story, that the story of Christmas, they're stories of hope for failures. They're stories of hope for the outcast and the broken, for those that don't belong, for those who are deeply and utterly hopeless. So please pray with me, and we'll jump into our study of Ruth this morning. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your faithfulness to us, for giving us your word, for uh, coming down in history for really and truly coming and being born as a baby so that you could save your people from their sins. Father, help us to trust you this morning. Help us to to be encouraged and to be challenged by your word of hope that you've given us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and give us faith to believe and to repent and to turn to you and to place our hope in you. We thank you for your love for us. It's in Christ's name we come. Amen. One of my favorite movies is The Shawshank Redemption, and it tells the story of Andy Dufresne, who's wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife, and he's sentenced to spend life in prison in Shawshank. Well, there, he becomes friends with Red, with Morgan Freeman's character, but they have different ideas of how to think about and how to live out their life sentences. One day, we see Andy uh, locks himself in the warden's office with a record player, and he plays Mozart over the PA system for all the prisoners to hear, and he gets in trouble and ends up having to spend a week in solitary confinement. And when he gets out, there's this awesome conversation around the lunch table where Andy's eating with his friends and explaining to them the significance that music has for him, and he says this. He says, you need it so you don't forget. So you don't forget there are places in the world not made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't touch that's yours. 
And Red looks at him and says, what are you talking about, Andy? And Andy answers, I'm talking about hope. And then Red responds this way. He says, let me tell you something, Andy. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no place on the inside. You better get used to that. And then he storms off. Andy has hope that one day he will get out, that justice will truly be served, that he will be free, and hope even that he might escape this prison finally. And Red has convinced himself that hope is dangerous because he really is in a hopeless situation. He's serving the sentence for a crime that he's committed, and there really is no hope for a better life for him. But as the movie goes on, Red, through his time with Andy, uh, has this seed of hope that Andy planted in him grow. And towards the end, spoiler alert, it's like a 25-year-old movie, you can, you can watch it. Um, watch the TBS version. Uh, Andy escapes from prison, and he goes to the place that he told Red he'd go to if he ever got out. He goes to the beach in Zahuatanejo, Mexico. And then Red, after serving 40 years of his life sentence, he comes up for parole, and he's approved for release. And as he's out on the outside, he remembers this promise that he made to Andy that if he ever was freed, he'd go to Buxton, he'd go to this hayfield with this oak tree and this long rock wall, and he'd find this package that Andy buried there for him under this black volcanic rock that has no place being there. And Red, he goes in search of what Andy buried, hoping that there really was something there, that, that he would really that it would really just be this thing that, that Andy promised him, but he, he doesn't know if it's really there. And so he goes out in search for it, hoping against hope. He goes in search of this rock, and he finds it, and he finds this envelope filled with money and a letter inviting and, uh, that Andy has written to him that invites him to come with him to Mexico. And then Andy's letter finally says this. He says, hope is a good thing, maybe the best thing, and no good thing ever dies. Hope is what we really all need right now, especially in this season of life that we find us in. And hope is what Advent truly brings. It's what the story of Christmas is all about. A light has come into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, unlike Red, we, you know, who didn't know if actually had actually buried the, the treasure there for him, or if he ever made it to Mexico at all, we hope, knowing the end of the story, we have hope in a real person who was born into history, who came, who died for us, who was raised from the dead, defeating death, and he secured us for himself, and he secured our future with him forever. Our hope is in the reality of the one true God that we find here in the scriptures, and because our hope is grounded in reality, we can have hope even in the most hopeless of circumstances. Because our God is a God who keeps his promises, and Jesus promised that he will return, and just as he came as a baby to die for our sins, he promised he will come again, and so we can bank on that. And so this morning, we're going to just walk through the story of Ruth together, one of Jesus' four mothers, and we're going to see that our God, who came to earth 2,000 years ago as a baby to bring hope, to shine a light into the darkness of our world, to shine the light into the darkness of our lives is a God that has always been about the business of bringing hope, even in the midst of great hopelessness. So we're going to look at the story of Ruth. We've read the kind of the bookends of it, and then we're going to apply it together. So Ruth, the story of Ruth, if you, if you have your Bibles, it, it begins in the days when the judges ruled. 
So this is more than just a timestamp for us, kind of dating it in history. It actually diagnoses the heart attitudes of God's people at the time and the hearts of Elimelech and, and Naomi here. Na- uh, Elimelech was Naomi's husband. The words that close and that sum up the book of Judges are this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, for there was no king in Israel. So that is the setting where the, the book of Ruth begins. And then we learn at the very beginning, Ruth, um, at the beginning of this book, it's in the days when the judges ruled, and then there was a famine that came. So Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they leave their land in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. So there's a little irony going on there of there being a famine in the, in the house of bread. They leave their people, and they leave, and they go to Moab. And at first glance, this doesn't seem like a, a big deal to us, but the, what, what Elimelech and Naomi are really doing, they're showing us that they don't trust in the God of the Bible to provide for them. They're showing that, that they are, are heading to, to Moab. They're leaving their God. They're leaving their people. They're leaving the land that he's given them, and they head to Moab. And, and it says that they, they, they don't just live in Moab, that they just kind of exist there. So this is, you know, a, a serious situation that many of us haven't had to face, in a, you know, living in a famine with no food. But these people, they leave their God, they leave their land, and they leave the land flowing with milk and honey, and they, they look for what they think are going to bring them life. They look for, for life and hope and prosperity in a land filled with people who are hostile to God, filled with people who don't worship the one true God but worship these false gods, and there... In Moab, tragedy strikes, and Elimelech dies. And Naomi's two sons, they marry these Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then about 10 years later, fast forward, these two sons of Naomi and Elimelech die. And Naomi is left in this foreign land with these two Moabite daughters-in-law who are now widows too. And then Naomi hears that the Lord has, has shown kindness and come to the aid of his people, and food has returned to Israel. And so she decides to go home. And so she says to Orpah and Ruth, which we read, you know, return to your families. Return to your gods in Moab, because life is going to be so much better for you there if you can go back home than it will be for you in Israel. You know, you can remarry. You can have children. You can be taken care of by your families. Instead of returning to Israel with me and facing this life of, of difficulty, With little prospect of finding a husband, with little prospect of having a family, you'll have no one to care for you, no one to provide for you, and you're going to constantly be under the threat of violence. That's the reality of of Orpah and and Ruth and Naomi as they are about to return to Israel. And so what we see here is Naomi really actually showing love and care for Ruth and Orpah, really trying to put their needs ahead of her own. And, and, and sending them back home to their families. But what we find out is that Orpah, you know, through tears, she returns home to her family. And then Ruth makes this incredible expression of covenant love and faithfulness to Naomi. And she pledges herself to Naomi. She pledges herself to the God of, of the Bible. And she, she basically becomes a follower of, of Yahweh in that moment. And so Ruth and Naomi, fast forward, they arrive in Bethlehem. And the women come out to greet them, and they say, can this really be Naomi? They completely ignore Ruth that's there. And Naomi says this, um, Naomi, whose name means sweet, whose name means pleasant. She says, don't, don't call me that. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara instead. Mara means bitter. 
I, she says this, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Meanwhile, Ruth is standing next to her as she's saying she's been brought back empty. So imagine the, the hurt and the disappointment that Ruth is experiencing here after she just pledged herself to Naomi and to her God. And then later on, as it would happen, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields to get some food for her and Naomi, and she happens to glean in Boaz's field. And Boaz happens to be one of their close relatives that could actually be Naomi's kinsman redeemer and buy back the family's land so that it could go on in her family's name and so that, that her line doesn't die when she does. And so Boaz is kind to Ruth. He shows extreme kindness and generosity to her. He provides for her. He protects her in, her, in his fields. And then he provides a ton of food for her and for Naomi. And then about seven weeks later, Naomi tells Ruth, okay, I want you to shower up. I want you to clean up, put on your best clothes, uh, put some perfume on, and then go sit at Boaz's feet when you find out where he falls asleep and just kind of wait for him. It's a pretty sketchy situation. Um, so Ruth says, okay, I'll do it. So Ruth goes in, she finds where Boaz is sleeping, and she just waits for him. Boaz startles awake, and Ruth does what all women would do in that moment. She proposes marriage to Boaz um, immediately. She just proposes to him, and Boaz, floored by her generosity and graciousness, and we've seen him bless her before. We've seen him, seen him say great, kind things to her. He promises her that he will marry her. He will be her husband. He will be their kinsman redeemer. But first, he reveals that there's someone closer. There's actually someone that's first in line uh, to be their kinsman redeemer. And so the next morning, Boaz wakes up. He goes to the elders. He tells this man who has the kind of the first right of refusal that he can buy back the land, uh, that, that he, can, um, he can buy the land back for himself. But then he mentions that buying the land back also means that you have to marry Ruth the Moabitess. And it's in that moment where the man declines. He was really excited about this great business opportunity that he had to expand his life and his wealth. But once he saw that it was going to cost him and his family and his family's inheritance, that he actually wasn't going to get the inheritance, that it was going to go to, to Ruth's family, he declines. And so Boaz finally buys back the land. He finally marries Ruth. And they have a son. They name him Obed. And the book ends with this genealogy that we read, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. So there's Ruth in like three and a half minutes. Um, it doesn't take that long to read, but this, this ultimately is a story of a family in Israel that experiences great tragedy and suffers much and is redeemed. Ruth is a story of an outsider who doesn't belong, who is brought in and becomes a part of the greatest story ever and is actually included in the family tree of Jesus. So what do we learn from the story of Ruth? We're going to just look at three things here this morning. There's, first, there's hope for failures. Two, there's hope in the midst of hopelessness. And three, God provides hope through community. So first, there's hope for failures. You know, we've already taken a cursory glance at the beginning at, at Jesus' family tree, and, and we've seen that it's just riddled with moral failures, with people who are spiritual and moral outsiders, with people who've done terrible and wicked things. And in one sense, we, we go, yeah, I, I get that. That's really all God has to work with, doesn't he? 
sinful people who've, who've rejected him, who believe the lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve in the garden that God really doesn't love you. God really doesn't want what's best for you. You can really make it on your own. We're filled with, with, with believing that lie. But what do we see here in the story of Ruth? You know, remember it begins with Elimelech, and his name means God is king. With him and Naomi, they leave Israel because of this famine. Now, it's not like just, you know, us moving to Austin or us moving to California because we heard there's work out there. Um, you know, they're leaving Bethlehem. They're leaving Israel is, in a sense, a rejection of God and who he is. It's a failure to, to trust him and his promises and his protection and his provision. And this becomes even more evident when we read that they actually go to Moab. Because if instead of putting... Elimelech's hope in, in God, resting in his promises, in his word, in his, in his uh, faithfulness. We see where Elimelech, whose name means God is king, what really is his God and what really is his king. It's really in his security. It's really in his, in his financial uh, security. It's really in his, his family being able to provide for themselves. And it's, he's not trusting in and in, in following the promises of God. And what we see there is he goes and he just exists in this land. He exists in this land with these false gods, these false gods that people sacrifice their children to. Uh, this land filled with people that recently had just oppressed the Israelites in Judges 3. And so what we see here is that Naomi and Elimelech, they failed. They've blown it big time here. They sell their God-given land. They leave him and they leave his people and they go searching for life outside of God and outside of his love. And you and I really get that. We are, are often presented with, with terrible and tragic and horrific things in this life. And what that does is it really peels back the layers of our hearts and it reveals the place and the places that we hope and we trust in. You know, we begin to ask questions like, God, do you really know what you're doing? Do you really even care about me at all? Are you even really good? Because I don't see it and I don't believe it right now. And instead of turning to scripture, instead of leaning into God's people, instead of leaning into his promises, instead of leaning into his community and, and remembering who God truly is, the way that he's described himself, that he is a God of compassion, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he is a savior and a redeemer. Instead of remembering what he's done in our history with his people and, and the scripture, instead of remembering what he's done in our own lives and in the lives of the people around us, we turn and we look to satisfy our own needs and our own desires, ultimately rejecting his care for and his provision for and his promises to us. I recently heard a story of a teenage girl who got into a car accident. And when she reached into her glove box to pull out her insurance card, she saw a note attached to it. And it said, it's okay, just call me and I'll be there. I love you, Dad. This really is... God's response to us when we fail. I'm here. I'll be there. Just call me. I love you, Dad. Now, there's still consequences for this young girl. Her car is still wrecked. She can't undo that. But there isn't abandonment. There isn't isolation because of this wreck now. And when we see with Naomi, she eventually returns to Bethlehem after having failed and, and failed to trust in God. And, and God demonstrates that he is exceedingly gracious to her, even in the midst of her depression, even in the midst of her anger, even in the midst of the tragedy that she's experienced with the loss of her husband and her sons. 
And so much so that at the end of the story we've read in, in chapter 4, verse 14, the women in Israel say, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Ruth ends up being better to Naomi than seven sons in a culture where, where the, the male child was really what they wanted. And that was how God or the people assumed that God showed their love and care for them. And the women here in the story recognize that Ruth is better than seven sons to Naomi. What we see here is, is that we often believe the lie that, that we're nothing more than our worst moments. That, um, that the worst thing about us, that is, that's who we are, and it can never get better. But God in his grace, through the story of Ruth, through the story of the genealogy of Jesus, through the coming of Jesus, he shouts to us, that's not true. He tells us that in his coming to save his people from their sins, that Jesus came to become our worst moments on the cross so that we could know his love, so that we can know his redemption, so that we could know his hope and his temper, tender embrace. The story of Naomi and the list of the people included in this genealogy, they tell us that though our sins are many, though our, our weakness is great, though our failures abound, his mercy is more. And his mercy is, is, has no ma- is no match for our sin. Flip that. Our sin is, has, is no match for his mercy. The beautiful thing that we see here in the story is God doesn't treat us according to, to the way the world treats us. That, that you're only as good as your, your great moments and you're, really, you're, you're worse than your, your most terrible moments. God doesn't treat us like karma where it says that you get out of me what you put into me. I'm going to bless you if you, do, if you do well, and if you blow it, I'm going to punish you tremendously. Jesus comes, and he takes the punishment that you and I deserve on the cross, and he takes the punishment that we deserve for our failures and for our sin and for our rejection of him, and he takes it on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became our sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise and the reality of Christmas coming. Our worst moments don't define us, especially if we are trusting in Jesus and we place our faith and our hope and our repentance in him. You can know, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, you can know the love and the acceptance and the security and the peace and the hope of Jesus if you place your trust and your hope in him. The story of Christmas this morning tells us that there is hope for failures like you and me to be included in Jesus' story of love and redemption. But we also see that there's hope in the midst of hopelessness. Naomi, she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And she's living in this foreign land that hates her people and hates her God. And she's a widow now, too. And she's too old to marry. And she's left destitute and homeless. She has no land to return to, no prospects of another husband, and no way to provide food for herself or even Ruth. And yet God works. God goes to work in these mundane and inconspicuous ways to provide hope and to provide life for her and for Ruth. God actually provides Ruth for Naomi. She's not alone. And we see that Ruth 
that we see in Ruth that, that the care that Naomi has for her actually makes her turn away from her gods and turn towards the one true God of the Bible. You know, when, when Naomi tries to send her away because life is going to be so difficult for her in Israel, Ruth responds, no one has ever loved me like that. And she turns and she pledges herself to, to Naomi. She pledges herself to this God in this beautiful expression of love that we read. God reminds Naomi that even though she feels empty, even though she's, she's bitter now, she's experienced great pain and loss, she's not alone. He provides his presence to her through Ruth. And then they return to Bethlehem and at the beginning of, of, of barley season, um, again, God's graciousness to them that they're going back and there's going to be food that they're able to get. God continues to provide for Naomi and Ruth over and over again through the kindness of Boaz here, ultimately ending up in Boaz buying Naomi's family's land back and providing a son for Ruth and Naomi so that their name doesn't stop with them. And then God uses this tragedy. God uses this son to bring about Israel's greatest king and King David and to bring about the savior of the world in Jesus himself. Many of you this morning can really identify with Naomi's hopelessness. Many of you have experienced great loss, whether it's the loss of a spouse or of a child or of a parent or of a friend. Um, many of you are experiencing what it feels like right now. To, it feels like God's hand is against you, like Naomi says, in your health, in your relationships, in your job situations, and in your circumstances and God wants to remind you in the midst of that hopelessness that he has not left you, that he will not leave you. You are not abandoned by him in those places of great darkness. That Jesus came as a light in the darkness, and it says the darkness has not overcome it. So whether it's our own personal darkness because of the choices that we've made or the darkness that we experience because of the situations and circumstances around us, we see that our darkness is no match for Jesus' light and his love and his kindness that he brings us. Sometimes, if we're honest, we know that things don't always turn out like they do for Naomi and Ruth. Um, sometimes tragedy strikes and we, we lose people. Um, we don't get the job. We don't experience the fairy tale ending. And life really does feel hopeless. But again, the story of Ruth, the story of, of Advent, of Christmas, of Jesus coming, whisper to us, that's not all there is. Hopelessness is not the end of the story. Jesus promises that he is coming. And as he came as a baby to undo all that is broken, he promises that he will come again. And he promises he will make all things new. And he himself will be there to wipe every tear from your eyes. He promises there'll be no more mourning, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering when he comes back. And we can bank on that promise because just as surely as he came as a baby, he has promised he's going to come again. And that is where we can find hope, even in the midst of great hopelessness. That darkness that we live in, that we wallow in, that we experience on a daily basis sometimes, it has nothing on the light of Jesus and his promises. And, it, and he promises that it cannot and it will not stand up to him in his light. So our God provides great hope in the midst of our hopelessness. And lastly, we see that our God provides hope, lastly, through community. We touched on, on this a moment ago, but if you remember, Naomi tries to send Ruth back home. 
tries to send her back to her gods, tries to send her back to her family because life is going to be so difficult for her in Israel because she's a foreigner, because she's a widow, because they have nothing that, they can, they can, that can sustain them. And Ruth will constantly be under the threat of violence um, in this community because she's a foreigner, because she's a widow. But in the context of relationship with Naomi, in the context of seeing Naomi's love demonstrated to her and seeing God's love demonstrated to her through Naomi, Ruth says, I want that God. I want that kind of relationship. I want that kind of of God to love me because this is the way that you love me. Even though I don't believe like you, even though I don't follow the gods you follow, you love me this way. And so I want that. And so she commits herself to this God and to Naomi, knowing that it's really going to cost her everything. It's going to cost her leaving her family, leaving her home, leaving her land, leaving her gods. But she does all this because she sees the beauty and the hope that the God of Israel actually can provide. And then we see it in Boaz. He shows up. He demonstrates this just unfathomable love and faithfulness to Naomi and to to Ruth and his willingness to sacrifice his money and his willingness to sacrifice his reputation and his, his family inheritance even to buy back Naomi's land for her family, to buy it back for Ruth and for Naomi. And what we see here ultimately is that Ruth, that, that Boaz, they're pictures of Jesus for us here in the Older Testament. That what Ruth leaves, all that she knows, all, that, all the security of home, all, of, all that she has, and she unites herself to this broken, failure, mess of woman in Naomi, and she says, I will never leave you. Where you will go, I will go, and only death will separate us. And Jesus comes and leaves heaven and leaves all the the worship of the angels, and he comes and he joins himself to us, and he says, I will be yours. You will be mine. Not even death will separate us because I will defeat death, and that is the thing that is ultimately going to join you and me forever. It is going to be through my death that you are brought in And through my resurrection, you will be brought in and you and I will be together and nothing, not your failures, not your circumstance, not your hopelessness, nothing will be able to separate you from my love. And then we see Boaz come at great personal cost to himself. He buys back Naomi's land. He unites himself to Ruth, to this outsider, to this Moabite, and he brings life and he brings redemption to this family. Again, we saw Jesus gives up heaven, gives up, gives up the glory of, of the worship of all the angels in heaven, and he comes to earth as a baby to experience all the pain, all the frustration, all the loss, all the brokenness of this world, and ultimately faces rede- rejection and death so that he can buy us back for himself, so that he can redeem us and make us a part of his family. And our God gives us each other in community here to help us see that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. We can demonstrate the love of God to each other and and be a part of bringing it in and loving those who are on the outside, those who don't believe like us, those who don't live like us, those who don't live and act and vote like we do. Naomi loves Ruth in this way, and that is the way that our God loves us over and over again. Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
God makes his presence known to us through his community, and he encourages us all to, to, to love and to respond to the love that we've been shown through Jesus and to extend that to those around us, to those who are on the outside, to those that don't fit in, to those that are not like us. And Ruth shows her love to Naomi in response to her love for her, and, and Boaz shows love to Ruth in this small story. These small pictures of grace, these small acts of sacrificial love actually become the avenue through which the king of the universe is born. God invites you and I this Advent season to see his love for us, to see the lengths that he would go to make us his and to respond by giving ourselves to him and then joining him in the mission of seeking and saving the loss, of loving those who are on the outside, loving those who don't quite fit in. One of my favorite uh, Christmas stories that our family watches year in and year out is The Grinch. Um, it, the Grinch tells a story of this ultimate outsider who's the outsider to the people of the land of Whoville, who doesn't look like a who, he's green, he's this kind of monster, horrific-looking creature. He doesn't believe in and celebrate Christmas like the rest of the who's, and he's ultimately this picture of this kind of personified hopelessness who lashes out in anger at any and everything that's beautiful and good because of the deep pain that lives inside of him. The Grinch, in his isolation, he feels completely alone, completely incapable of love and relationship. But along comes Cindy Lou Who, this little girl who shows kindness to him, who shows an interest in him, that shows deep love and compassion to him despite all of the wicked and terrible things that he's done to her community. And it's because of the love that this little girl shows him and the love and the generosity that he experiences in the lives of the who's when, when they re, he realizes that Christmas doesn't mean just packages and presents, but it's actually more than that. The Grinch's heart is literally transformed in the story. He experiences love and immediately goes out and extends that love that he's experienced to those around him. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. When Jesus comes to us and pursues us as outsiders who are rejecting him and our grinchiness, he not only welcomes us, but he loves us and dies for us. And he lays a feast before us and he welcomes us at his table as his featured and honored guest. And he says, come and be with me and celebrate with me and feast with me and extend that kindness to those around you. Extend that grace and that hope that you've received to those around you who don't know me. The story of Ruth, the story of Christmas this season, it brings hope for failures. It brings hope in the midst of our hopelessness, and it brings hope through his community. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love and your kindness to us. We thank you that you are good and that we can trust you in your word. We thank you that we have advent to look forward to, that we have the coming of your son to anticipate and to celebrate. We thank you that you provide hope for the hopeless, that our failures don't turn us away, don't turn you away from us, but you come towards us and you make a beeline for us because you love us and because you came to die for sinners. Father, help us to, to, to enjoy and to rest in and to celebrate and to place our hope and trust in you this morning. It's in Christ's name we come. Amen.